Previously on American Thought Leaders. If you want to flourish an NIH or any of these regulatory agencies, the way to do that is by carrying water for the pharmaceutical industry. In part one of my interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr., founder and chief legal counsel of Children's Health Defense, we discussed glaring conflicts of interest in our health agencies and what he describes as a coup d'etat against American democracy and the Bill of Rights. Now in part two, he explains how U.S. government tools developed for influencing overseas populations were deployed on Americans. The CIA has become a government within our government and really a tumor on our system. What does he think about allegations the CIA was involved in the assassination of his uncle, John F. Kennedy? And at a time when many had lost faith in the American system, how do we restore power to the American people and rekindle American ideals? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. One of the big worries of the people who made the Constitution is that through demagoguery and fear and essentially propaganda, that demagogues and tyrants would easily be able to persuade, particularly an uneducated public, uh, to relinquish the rights that the founders had fought and in some cases died for. I mean, one of the reasons that we have, uh, we were the first country with mandatory public education. They understood that um, an uneducated public could easily be manipulated through propaganda to relinquish those rights. Today, unfortunately, we have the mechanism by which people are being educated, our social media and, um, <laughs> and you know, the, the, the legacy media, which is shriveling and dying right now, but the social media is, as we saw, completely controlled by the intelligence agencies and by military interests and by the government and by, you know, the, the regulatory agencies who were, you know, who were orchestrating this whole coup d'etat against democracy. And the social media companies, which initially Mark Zuckerberg and Sergey Brin and Jeff Bezos and all the others promised us that social media was going to democratize the world. And, and it became, we watched in one year as it became the primary instrumentality by which totalitarian uh, interests tyrannize us. <laughs> You know, well, so many things I want to met and talk about here, but one of them is it's very curious uh, to me, given what you said about this, the educated that are supposed to be able to notice the demagoguery, for example, right, or the propaganda. But, you know, for example, actually, it was the truckers, ostensibly the less educated, yeah, that, that were able to yeah, see through. Yeah, that, right? that's a very good point. And it was shocking. I mean, it was shocking to me that the most educated people and the people who had been the most tenacious about traditionally their defense of the Bill of Rights, uh, you know, against all attacks during the McCarthy era, during the you know Vietnam War, during the Iraq War, the people who stood up and said, we need to be able to criticize these, our government, etc., suddenly um, became disabled, their capacity for critical thinking became disabled by this incredibly skilled uh, propaganda push. And, you know, you and I have talked about this in the past, but the CIA, of course, has um, for decades perfected these techniques for mind control. And, you know, and this isn't paranoia, by the way, their, their program was called MKUltra, the original one. 
MK Naomi, MK Dietrich, and the other ones. And MK stands for mind control. That was the code for, you know, mind control. And they were devising ways to control not only individuals and, you know, get people to become unwitting assassins, what they call Manchurian candidates, etc. And all this is well documented because the Church Committee and, you know, and the Rockefeller Commission and many, many other, uh, what I'm saying now is not, you know, the ravings of a, of a paranoid anti-vaxxer. It's like, this is what, you know, I, I don't think these are even controversial concepts because they're so well documented. But also they were devising ways to control whole populations. How do you um, impose control, a centralized control, on an indigenous population, a foreign country, um, you know, by, first of all, disabling institutions, by using propaganda to sow fear, by polarization, deliberate polarization of the population, by sowing the country with chaos agents, and, you know, all these techniques or creating chaos in uh, developing countries so that you can come in the CIA. The CIA was involved in coup d'etats or attempted coup d'etats between 1947 and 1997 against a third of the nations on earth, and most of them were democracies. And so the CIA does not do public health. It does coup d'etats. That's what they specialize in, and they had... During that period of MK Ultra, they were paying social scientists to devise ways of social control, and some of those were individual. They were using psychedelic drugs like LSD. They were using um, um, sensory deprivation, uh, torture techniques, um, and then you know fear and propaganda and authoritarian um, messages, etc and experimenting with all these things to figure out what worked. Well, in beginning around 2016, you know, with the election of Trump and with Brexit, it seems like at that point the intelligence agencies made a decision to turn all of those weapons onto um, the American people. And we saw this, this extraordinary propaganda campaign at the beginning of the pandemic and the, the, to the extent that people just say, oh, well, you know, the CIA wouldn't do that to America. It's illegal to propagandize America. It isn't anymore. During the, the Bush, during the Obama administration, that law was uh, essentially, that old law that had forbidden was overrided, and it was also overwritten in the Patriot Act in 2001 during the Bush administration. The CIA has gotten, has gained all of these increasing powers to propagandize American people and to use these techniques on Americans. And more and more we're seeing, you know, the control of the press in our country, the, the old resurrection of Operation Mockingbird. When Operation Mockingbird, which is the operation where they controlled hundreds and hundreds of reporters and editors of the most important papers in our country. It was uncovered in 1973, and the CIA kind of said, okay, we won't do it anymore in the United States, but they've been doing it abroad. And there's no, again, that's not controversial. The CIA admits it. They fund these programs mainly through billions of dollars a year through USAID. The U.S. government is the biggest 
supporter of finance or of journalism throughout the world, and we're not funding journalism <laughs> that is, you know, neutral. It, this is journalism that uh, supports the U.S. agenda. So, um, you know, we've been doing that all over the world, and almost certainly we've been doing it in our country, too, surreptitiously for many years. But all of a sudden, those techniques have been turned against our country. And, and by the way, in my book, in, a, in the Fauci book, I, I talk about this event called Event 201, which was a pandemic simulation that took place in October 2019 in New York. And it was sponsored by Bill Gates, I think the World Economic Forum, um, by um, uh, the Chinese CDC. George Gayo was there. Mm -hmm. The social media companies were there. The pharmaceutical companies were there. The big corporate PR firms were there. And they were... And, the the and, current DNI was there. Yeah, the current DNI... Avril Haynes, who's the director of national intelligence, who's the top spy now in the world. And at that time, she was the former deputy director of the CIA. And Avril Haynes got her, made her bones at the CIA by covering up the Abu Ghraib and the Guantanamo Bay torture tapes. And, it, and, you know, and covering up the illegal destruction of those tapes and then covering up the illegal tapping of the United States Senate by the people who had destroyed those tapes or who were trying to protect the people who destroyed those tapes. So she is a, she's like an uh, impresario at cover-ups. She's President Biden's top spy. She was at, um, the former deputy director of the CIA, and she is at this simulation. What is the CIA doing in a pandemic simulation? They're not a, a public health agency. As I said, they're an agency that does coup d'etats. And if you look at what they did, that agency is it, simulating a, a global coronavirus pandemic that kills 60 million people, which is a lot more than you know, the, the actual one did, which, which was two months later, which we learned about two months later, although it was already circulating in October of 2019. It, we didn't know about it until January 2020. So... Um, what are they talking about? They're not talking about public health. They're not talking about how do we get vitamin D to everybody to build their immune systems? How do we keep them outside and healthy? How do we get people to lose weight? How do we quarantine the sick and yet, you know, protect constitutional rights and protect the vulnerable and all of those kind of things that you would normally talk about? No, what they're talking about is using this pandemic as a pretext or clamping down totalitarian controls. And the first thing they said is we gotta, we gotta limit free speech. We can't allow people to criticize government policies. And particularly, we cannot allow people to talk about a lab leak. They're doing this in October of 2019 before anybody of us have ever heard of Wuhan. So, and, and if you look at it during that part of the discussion, which is the fourth part, Avril Haines is kind of leading it. How can governments, international businesses, international organizations ensure that reliable information is getting to the public and prevent highly damaging and false information to the extent that's possible about the pandemic from spreading 
and causing deepening crisis around the world. Every time there is something that comes out that is in fact false information that is starting to actually hamper our ability to address the pandemic, then we need to be able to respond quickly to it. One of the things we want to do is work with telecommunication companies to actually ensure that everybody has access to the kind of communications that we're interested in providing, because that's going to be critical for dealing with, uh, you know, obviously, the explosion of the disease. There's misinformation, and uh, there's some belief. People believe, you know, this is a man-made, some uh, pharmaceutical company made the virus. So we really need to to train the health workers, especially health care workers, their access to the patients, to the public. So make sure they, they got the right information. And so I think we really need to make sure, one, from a news perspective, that that information being, is being disseminated correctly and that we have the right source, resources out there um, to provide this information. It's not just about handing people a piece of knowledge. It's also about how we incentivize them to manage their behaviors, which in any communicable disease outbreak, Behaviour of one sort will minimise your chance of getting a disease versus behaviour of another sort which may maximise that chance. This is uh, a step up from the part of the government on enforcement actions against fake news. And George Gao, who's the CDC, China, you know, Chinese CDC, who must know at that point that this virus is already circulating because he is the world's the, the Chinese expert on coronavirus. He has to know it's circulating in Wuhan. And it, by the way, in September of 2019, the Wuhan lab removes all 22,000 you know, viral samples from the website. So it's clear at that point. And they, you know, meanwhile, the satellite shows that the hospital's already filling up the chatter that was monitored by Harvard and Brown and uh, BU. Uh, they're all talking about the symptoms of coronavirus. So the Chinese government had to know this, and George Gao had to know it. He's there in October of 2019 with the CIA, uh, former deputy director, talking about how do we quiet people when they start talking about a lab leak. And she says, quote, not only do we need to censor them, but we need to flood the zone with authoritative voices, which means propaganda, you know, dismissing it. If you have a trusted source, I believe in the idea that we shouldn't be trying to um, control communication, but rather flood the zone, in a sense, with a trusted source that then is <coughs> influential community leaders as well as health workers. And of course, that's exactly what they did. And, you know, in researching the book, as you know, because you read my last chapter, I found that that was not a one-off pandemic simulation. The CIA has been conducting these simulations since uh, 20, 2001, five months before the anthrax attacks and before the anthrax attacks and predicted everything that would happen. And each one of these simulations, there are CIA, high-level CIA personnel taking place and running them, like James Wolsey, the deputy director, and uh, Ruth David and Taro O'Toole, and other people from NQTEL and the CIA. And again and again, they're practicing how do we use the next pandemic to execute a coup d'etat against American democracy and against the Bill of Rights? How do we dismantle the Bill of Rights? And that is very, very worrying because everything that they bottled, they did. 
It's interesting how you are framing this right now, because as I was reading those last few chapters that talk about all these different simulations that were run, uh, you know, basically wargaming out what a pandemic response would look like, they, they all have a very, very similar character to them of the nature that, of the nature that you've been describing. They don't talk about, frankly, all of the methods that we do know historically have been effective, right? And, that, and that's what I find fascinating. It's almost as if it was, it's sort of a, a, almost like a kind of indoctrination that this is the way pandemic response should be done. Uh, going forward, uh, I don't. I mean, they were, it feels like a jump to say, "Well, this is the, this is an engineered. This is this is a plan to run a coup d'état internally on America." Yeah, but what, what they were, I mean, what, and I'm not. I can't say it was or it wasn't because I can't look in these people's heads. I can say this is very strange <laughs> that they they were doing this, and then they, they were such extraordinary soothsayers. And that they precisely predicted exactly that what would happen when, you know, we saw this pivot where, and by the way, some of these simulations are called Operation Lockstep. And we saw this pivot right after, you know, about March of 2020, when all the liberal democracies in the world pivoted and turned against, you know, constitutional rights and free speech, etc. Um, and if you look at, you know, these simulations, Event 201, only involved a kind of a handful of very, very powerful people. If you look at the other one, they involved hundreds of thousands of people. And they were first responders from cities all over the United States, Canada, Europe, Australia, and other countries, even China, participated in some of them. They were, they were secret or top secret, uh, but they would be, the people who would participate would be low-level, I mean, they would be mayors of cities, they were um, first responders, firefighters, hospital systems, uh, public utilities, police, the FBI, the CIA, the U.S. Marshals, all of these different agencies who were all being drilled that this is what you do when there's a pandemic. So, you know, because... And what, what I would say is normally if, if, they, if they were just asked to respond to a pandemic and somebody said, well, what, what you do when there's a pandemic is you get rid of the First Amendment, the Constitution, and start stifling speech, uh, people would react and say, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right to me. Why are we doing this? And there would be dissent in the ranks and questioning. But if you drill that again and again and again and again, and everybody just gets in this lockstep and they say, okay, this is what we do. This is what the experts say. And each one of these pandemics had some, you know, respected person running it who was kind of the figurehead like Madeleine Albright or Tom Daschle or Sam Nunn or Bill Gates or somebody that gave it kind of the imprimatur of legitimacy. And most of them were probably useful idiots who didn't even know, you know, what they were doing there. They were just trying to be helpful. But, you know, it, uh, it legitimized this very, very strange response to pandemics. The way that you do pandemics is getting rid of the Bill of Rights. And, of course, um, you know, one of the things Eisenhower said in... 
1961, during his military-industrial complex speech, we need to figure out how to balance the, you know, these uh, the needs of the military, the scientific uh, research, always keeping constitutional rights as the forefront of everything that we do. That lesson was completely forgotten. You know, you don't try to save America by destroying America. And America is, you know, what is it? We're the Purple Mountains Majesty. We're a collection of people from different races from all over the world. The thing that holds us together and gives uh, the quality and the definition to who we are is the United States Constitution. It's something we all say, okay, this is what, no matter what, this is what we're going to all believe in. You know, we're not all going to be the same religion. We're Muslims, we're Jews, uh, we're Van Gogh, we're everybody. So we're not going to agree on, on a lot of things. But we're going to agree on this. Everybody's going to agree on these 10 amendments of the Constitution. Whether there's a war, whether there's a plague, whether there's starvation, whether there's a depression, we're not going to do it. And, you know, during the Great Depression, there were a lot of people who wanted to throw out the Constitution. And President Roosevelt said, um, the, you know, he gave this famous speech in his first inaugural where he said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. The reason he said that is because he knew that fear was the tool of tyrants and that he saw what, you know, the depression was a worldwide depression. He saw what was happening in Germany, in Spain, in Italy, where totalitarian fascists had used the depression and the fear from the depression to, um, to take over uh, totalitarian and authoritarian control. He saw in Russia, where the same depression was being used to fortify the communist regime, and in other, some of the Eastern European countries where that was happening too. And there was people in the United States, you know, Huey Long, who a third of the people in our country was beloved. And he was saying, it's time for, you know, a revolution. This isn't working. A lot of people had lost faith in capitalism and they lost faith in democracy. What he said to us is the only thing you have to have is fear that we're going to get through this and we're going to rebuild these institutions, which is exactly what he did. And But he said, you got to calm down. And that's the great thing that he did for our country is he calmed everybody. And that was kind of the, the centerpiece of the Democratic Party is we, you know, we're home of the brave, land of the free, home of the, we're land of the free because we're the home of the brave, because we're not going to get disabled by fear. And all of a sudden, for the first time in our history, we had a government that was drumming up fear, that was trying to make us scared, and they were all in line with the mainstream media and the social media pumping fear into us every single day. The virus is going to get you. It's going to kill you. It doesn't matter what age you are. You're going to die. You know, you're, stay away from your neighbors. They're biohazards. 
put on the mask, do what you're told, obey. And that fear has this capacity to disable, to disable critical, our capacity for critical thinking. And that's why it's the tool of tyrants. And, um, you know, they weaponized it. So there's two things that come to mind, actually three things. Um, the first one is, and I think you write about this in the book, and I, this is something that I keep coming back to, is that we've experienced the largest upward transfer of wealth in history. That is profoundly disturbing and a kind of decimation of the middle class at the same time through COVID. And this is in basically in, in every Western country that implemented these shelter-in-place policies and so forth. Um, the second thing, though, is that, you know, as I hear you talking about what the CIA has done, what happened, what our country did, the, the suspension of the Bill of Rights, inadvertently, this is music to every tyrant's ears. The Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, is very happy to be hearing, you know, America being taken down. In fact, they're going to be using this and saying, look, America has lost its moral high ground. We're the ones that, that you should be looking to. Vladimir Putin is already using the exact same talking points, okay? But on the other hand, I guess this is the third thing, I do hear in what you've been saying a kind of a love of America and, and this country. So I guess the question I have is, um, is, is there a future for America in all of this? Because I can't help but become, feel very, very down on America as we're talking here. So let, but let's start with the first thing. Let's start with, with what happened with this upward transfer of wealth. Yeah, I mean, during COVID in the U.S. alone, there was a $3.8 trillion shift in wealth upward from the largely from the middle class and the poor in our country to, at least in part, this new oligarchy of billionaires. There were 500 new billionaires created during the pandemic, and a lot of the money ended up concentrating... Uh, ironically or coincidentally, um, in the social media companies that were actually benefiting from the lockdowns and that were simultaneously censoring criticism of the lockdowns. Um, and those companies have strong entanglements with the Pentagon and also the intelligence agencies because a lot of those companies were created in the Silicon Valley uh, with participation from InQtel, which is the CIA uh, investment firm. It was the Pentagon and DARPA that created the ARPANET in 1979, so they created the internet and then began um, seeding these companies with investments with very, very secretive investments. A lot of the time, a lot of those uh, companies, high-level CEOs in those companies, high-level executives, C-suite, uh, people in those companies sign uh, uh, security, state security agreements with the agency in exchange for investments in the company, which makes them essentially a pawn of the agency. Almost all of them have huge contracts with the military and with the CIA or with the other defense intelligence agencies or the other agencies. So there are all these kind of financial and power entanglements. And then the, the poor just got hammered in this country. Children um, lost 22 IQ points, according to the Brown University study. 
younger children during the pandemic. You had um, the suicide rates, the alcoholism rates. If you were wealthy in this country, the lockdowns were a pajama party. You know, they, your kids got to stay home. For me, you know, it was wonderful because my kids were home with me. I never thought all my kids, I have seven kids, I never thought they'd all live at home again. And we got to go outside. We spent a lot of time outside because I live, you know, adjacent to a wilderness and near a beach where we could surf. But if you were, if you lived in Compton, the police went in there, or Harlem, or Watts, the police went in there and padlocked the playgrounds. And the parking lots where people from inner city can come and park and go to the beach were all shut down. The skateboard parks, they threw sand on them. So people, you know, this is a, a disease that spreads indoors. And yet we locked everybody indoors. Uh, they were ticketing the surfers on the beach, a thousand, the police were down ticketing them a thousand dollars. You're not gonna get COVID out, out there. You're gonna get sunshine, which is gonna protect you against COVID. And they, the playgrounds that they couldn't close, they removed the basketball hoops. So if you lived in a poor neighborhood, you got locked indoors. And a lot of those kids, the only hot meal that they get was at school and they closed the schools. And you know the only indicia of, um, of poverty and, and social deterioration that actually improved was child abuse. Child abuse by a lot of the registries went down during the COVID, but it didn't, that was an artifact of reporting because child abuse, most child abuse is reported by the schools. And you close the school and you lock the abused child in with their abusers. 50% uh, reported some form of abuse, physical or verbal abuse, and I think 9% physical abuse, up, you know, double or triple from former levels. This was an attack on the poor. It was a war against the poor. There were 10,000 kids in Africa that were dying of starvation every month because of lockdowns. And all over the world, kids were dying because of lack of access to medication for dysentery, for malaria. You know, it was a war on the poor all over the world. And according to Larry Summers and, you know, the Harvard study, the cost uh, was of the lockdowns were $16 trillion. Well, how are we going to pay that? We're going to pay it by printing money, the same way that we're going to pay for the, uh, for the Ukraine war, $100 billion there. We're going to print money, and when you print money, you get inflation, and inflation is a tax on the poor. It's another way of transferring wealth to the banks, to the rich, uh, by destroying the pensions, by destroying the, you know, the value of your Social Security check, by destroying the bank account, your life savings, all of that gets eroded. And wealth is transferred to the very, very rich. And, uh, you know, was it purposeful? I can't say that, but it's, it's very, very bad for our country. Many, many Americans, many Canadians, um, many people in Western nations are looking at, you know, what has happened to America? Are we really, is this really a democracy here? People are asking these sorts of questions. And I often have to tell them, yes, absolutely, compared to, you know, communist China. Some people say, you're, you're, we're just like communist China. We're, we're just like Russia. And it's like, no, actually, we're not just like that. Maybe if we keep going down this road, we'll get there. So, but I, so I hear kind of two sides. You say there's been a coup. 
at the same time, I hear you being, you know, have a heart for the American spirit or America. Where, where do we go from here? Well, I would not be fighting this fight if I didn't think that there was a hope for restoring, you know, democracy and values to our country. And that, um, you know, is kind of central to what I do with my life. I don't know what form that will come in, but I know that, you know, my job is to, is to fight for it. The way that that's going to happen is if enough um, individuals take personal responsibility for making that happen. And, you know, for me, I, I don't make predictions and uh, I try not to get invested in outcomes. The only thing I control that I actually have control over is this little piece of real estate inside of my own shoes. And, um, and you know, I, what I, the way that I live my life is I try to let go of the outcomes and not get invested in them, but I know I have to get up every day, say, reporting for duty, sir, look in the mirror, and then go out and get on the barricades and fight for democracy and fight for human dignity and fight for uh, human rights and freedom and tolerance and patience and kindness and all the things that... Uh, you know, that my God wants me to fight for. I was in the environmental movement for, as a leader for 40 years, I'm still an environmentalist, but um, if you're an environmentalist, it, every victory is temporary and every loss and defeat is permanent. If you lose a species, it's gone forever. If you lose a piece of landscape, um, God isn't gonna replace it with something if you pave it over, you know, so um, you never get it back. And a lot of environmentalists burn out because of that, because they, they feel defeated, their souls get crushed, um, and they feel hopeless. And I just made a decision at the beginning of my career after seeing a lot of people burn out that I was not going to do that, and I wasn't going to get invested in results. If you don't have expectations, you know, you'll never get disappointed. And um, and then if you're not, if they're not capable of dif disappointing you, they can't defeat you. And you become relentless. And that's what makes somebody like me dangerous is no matter what they do to me, I'm going to stand up and fight them again. And I think that's one of the things that makes Falun Gong a, a threat to the Chinese government is you have a lot of individuals who say, we don't have expectations except from ourselves, from our own souls, from our own duty to do the right thing, and we're gonna do it no matter what you do to us. And I think all of us have to have that attitude um, because uh, that is what is going to give us ultimately victory if we cannot be defeated. If you just know what you're gonna do, you let go of the outcomes, you, cannot, you can never be beaten. So very quickly, do we live in a democracy? Do we live in a constitutional republic here today, in your view? I would say right now, in name only, we don't, we don't have free press in the United States anymore. Um, you know, we have the forms of democracy. We have elections. And, um, but, 
it's do do individuals really have any um you know bearing over most of their political officials or against the agencies of government i would say no that those are controlled by money now there are things that you can do there are simple reforms that can restore america a meaningful democracy in this country one of those is to get money out of the electoral process we had that rule for 100 years in our country. We passed it in 1908. And, uh, and then in the Citizens United decision in 2008, it was thrown out by the Supreme Court. But, and I think that is key because otherwise you have corporations. You know, if you listen to run for New York State Senate today, our U.S. Senate in New York costs $50 million dollars. And that means that if you're running, you have to be calling hundreds of people every day and asking for $10,000 or $25,000 contributions. And when you get into office and they call you back, you've got to take their phone calls. And that means you don't have any, any time left for the little guy who's getting trampled by the government. And so it's not really a democracy anymore. It's more of an oligarchy or a plutocracy that only is responding to the needs of the rich and to the needs, the domination of corporations and money who are paying, you know, um, the lobbying and election costs of the politicians who become their indentured servants on Capitol Hill. So that's one of the issues. The, 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 the issue of corporate capture of our regulatory agencies is also fairly easy to fix if you have a, uh, an executive, either a governor or a president, who is determined to do it and who knows how to get into the weeds and do those things. Um, you know, that the NIH would be an easy agency to fix. You don't have to burn it to the ground. There's ways of doing it. Same with CDC and FDA. You gotta get the money out. You gotta get the pharmaceutical money out. And the CIA is easy to fix, too. The CIA, what, you know, my father was going to fix the CIA. When he was running, um, his intention was to divide the CIA, to return the CIA to what it was supposed to be, which is a espionage agency, which means, um, which means information, gathering information and doing analysis and providing that information to the executive. What really... Uh, took the CIA in a wrong direction was that Alan Dulles manipulated to allow it to actions, the, the, what they call the plans division, you know, which is assassinating leaders, which is fixing elections and doing all this kind of monkey business around the world. And because they're both in the same agency, the the tail, which is the plans division, begins wagging the dog, which is espionage and information. And the information uh, division becomes a, an extension of the paramilitary division. And, and its function is to now justify these paramilitary interventions and to cover them up and to make sure there's no accountability. And what you need is a separate agency that is looking over the back of the plans division and saying, what is the cost of the blowback? The cost of the blowback is never measured. You look at the Iraq war. The CIA manufactured evidence for the Iraq war, the weapons of mass destruction. George Tenet told George Bush, it's a slam dunk. 
we go into Iraq, and then we go, that leads us into Syria. And the Syrian war leads to two million refugees that go into Europe, and democracy then collapses in Europe. We have Brexit, etc. Those are all part of the cause of blowback. You know, we overthrew Mohammed Mossadegh in 1953 in Iran, and we're still paying the price of that with the Iranian government and with the tensions in the region. So, um, you know, somebody, nobody has to ever account for the cause of blowback. And you need to have an agency looking over and critical and saying, this was a huge mistake. And unfortunately, the CIA has become a government within our government and really a tumor on our system. And we need to uh, fix that. We've been talking a lot about propaganda originating in the government or supported by the government, endorsed through social media and so forth. Um, it just struck me that one of the sort of criticisms, actually, of the American system that, for example, um, different dissident groups have is that there isn't enough pro-American propaganda, i.e., you know, America's an amazing place. I mean, and well, these are the principles of America. The, 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 it, it's almost like the propaganda arms are not, on the surface, pro-American. <laughs> what I would say is we, we should worry less about propaganda and worry more about policy. And, you know, my uncle, um, President Kennedy had some ideas about foreign policy. One, that we should support nationalist group, we should support national sovereignty against the traditional colonial powers. We should be, America should be in a posture against imperialism by anybody. Um, we should win by ideas and not by military, by you know having our, our ideas drive in the marketplace of ideas. The viewpoint of uh, of children in Africa and Asia when they hear about Americans should be Peace Corps volunteers and not men with guns. And that the arm of America should be USAID, which at that point was actually aiding the poor before the CIA took it over, and the Alliance for Progress, and the, the Kennedy Milk Program. You know, when I go to Africa, I run into so many people whose name is Kennedy because they are named after my uncle. And in every capital in Africa, in Latin America, and many in Asia, there are boulevards named after my uncle. There are medical schools, there are colleges and universities, and there are statues to him, you know, in, in major places in those cities. And, um, you know, I, I would say it's hard to measure them, you know, there are lots of polls about who the best president is, et cetera. If you measure um, the, if you want to use as a metric the, uh, the, the number of place names and, you know, that, that bear the name of a certain president, you would, um, my uncle would be the top of them all. And I think it's because there is a hope around the world by most people that America will be the America that lives up to its promise and its ideals. And when we have a president that actually does that, we get credit. And it's not because of propaganda. It's because people see the goodness of America in their lives. 
And I think that's what we should focus on rather than, you know, inventing ways of convincing people of things that may or may not be true. So when it comes to your uncle, John F. Kennedy, um, and his assassination, what is it that we actually know at this point? Because, you know, people have seen the Tucker Carlson episode. He's alluding to some involvement that wasn't denied. What, what do we actually know? Well, that is a big question. There are millions and millions of documents now that link the CIA to my uncle's death. And summarizing them would be, you know, almost impossible. I mean, I think the, the thing that Tucker was uh, referring to was what for some people was a revelation, but not for me, because I've been reading these documents for years, is that Lee Harvey Oswald was a CIA asset. Uh, he was recruited. He had been a radar operator, a U.S. Marine, a radar operator at the uh, Asui uh, Air Force Base in Japan, which is where the U-2 flew out of. And he was recruited by James Jesus Angleton to do a fake uh, defection to the Soviet Union. And the reason they wanted to do a fake defection is because they knew that there was a mole at Langley who was giving all of the uh, information on, on, the, on the CIA spying programs in the Soviet Union to, uh, the, to the Kremlin, and all of our spies were being killed as soon as they got over there, and, or as soon as they defected. And so they wanted to find out who it was, and, they, and Angleton believed that if Oswald defected this very high-level, high-profile defection, that the Kremlin would worry about whether or not he was a spy and would ask their spy at Langley to check his file. And there was a trigger system on that file that would reveal anybody who checked it. And so that was... Uh, the purpose of getting Oswald sent to the Soviet Union, of course, nothing happened. And two years later, he came home with no punishment. The State Department paid his ticket, and he was sent to Dallas, and where he was picked up by, you know, uh, George Morshot, who was a CIA asset, and by other people in the CIA, and gotten the job at the Texas Book Depository. But, you know, there are, mil there are many, many, many other details that are hard to summarize. But, uh, you know, I, I think that that, for a lot of people, because the CIA had denied it for so long and the FBI had denied it when they knew that it was true that he was a CIA asset. Do you think that now would be a good time for to... I guess, declassify this information? Well, it was legally supposed to be declassified a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And, they, you know, the question is, why aren't they declassifying it? You know, all the people who were involved are now dead. It's clearly, uh, you know, the reason is about institutional protection. And institutional protection is something we're hearing a lot about um, from, with, me, with numerous institutions. So this, and this is what I wanted to ask you about. There's this new uh, subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government. What are your recommendations to them? I think addressing the censorship is the most important thing. Addressing the suppression of, of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin in early treatments, 
you know, the United States had um, the worst record of any country in the world on how we manage COVID. It's hard to understand why Anthony Fauci is still a hero. We have 4.2% of the global population and we had 16% of the COVID deaths. So that's not a good record. We had a death rate of about 3,000 people per million population from COVID. And if you look at the countries that were using ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine, Nigeria had 14 people per million, one two hundredth of ours. And you can say, well, those are young populations and COVID is a disease of the old, which is true, but the oldest population in the world is Japan, which also allowed access to hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, and their death rate was one-tenth of ours. You go around the world and it, there's such a direct, clear correlation, and the studies are so clear. There were a lot of Americans who died who should not have died. And uh, probably around 650,000, according to Harvey Reich and the other biostatisticians who have looked at um, the, uh, the studies, which are clear. The studies show consistently over 100 studies that 85% of the people um, who died should not have died because they were denied early um, treatment. And so I think that's a really important um, issue to address directly. And then, of course, the origins of the virus at Wuhan lab and the cover-up of that, you know, shouldn't be addressed. Uh, but I think the censorship is the most important thing. If you don't have censorship, if you have, you know, uh, the press doing its job, these things would not have happened. Well, you have a lawsuit out right now against, you know, the Trusted News Initiative. Yeah, we have a lot of lawsuits on censorship right now. <laughs> Arguably, right, the, what we call, what you call the legacy media, what I also call the legacy media. Um, it's just, it's like their mandate has changed. It's not, truth-seeking is no longer the mandate, right? So I guess what are you hoping these lawsuits will accomplish? Um, I'm, I'm thinking of this one specifically against, you know, Reuters and Washington Post and so forth that you have out there. What can these lawsuits accomplish, if, if I'm right, about this mandate being changed? My object, our objective ultimately is to make um, censorship so embarrassing or otherwise expensive for them that they'll stop. And that, you know, I mean, it's, it's what's really extraordinary to me is you have all these young reporters who went to journalism school. They were captured by the idealism, the excitement of, of, of pursuing existential truths and then exposing them to the public. They knew the importance of the free flow of information to, demo to a democracy. That's, it's the sunlight, it's the fertilizer, it's the water for democracy. Without it, withers and dies. Um, they, you know, and, they, and the free press, is important, you know, listen, totalitarian regimes in the short term are almost always more efficient than democracies. Democracies are, are messy, they're slow, they're sloppy, they're, sloppy, they're infuriating, um, inefficient. Over the long term, we think they're more efficient, but over the short term, and, and the U.S. in its history has shown that. But if you want to, you know, kill people who are your enemies and get 
policy is done, you can operate like the Chinese operate. And you can have a certain short-term efficiency in that. Um, but the, the framers of the Constitution argued that the one advantage that we really have, a short-term advantage over totalitarian regimes, is that in a, uh, in, in a, with the free flow of information, that the, the best ideas rise in the, um, in the marketplace of ideas and triumph, and that they have been annealed in the furnace of debate, and that those ideas will ultimately make better policies, and policies that are the product of uh, consensus and a buy-in the population so you get a more stable electorate because they feel that they've been consulted and that they're part of this. And these young reporters understood this. They all came. They all came into journalism school with the idea that they were going to get a chance to speak truth to power, to stand up for the little guy and against powerful governments. And now they've become the tool, the bullhorn for those powerful governments to bully and subjugate the little guy. And so they're living against their conscience. You have to imagine they're living against their values. And, you know, we need to give them a chance to, um, to honor the values and the aspirations that called them to journalism in the first place. And we need to do that by embarrassing their bosses and making censorship expensive mm. for them. You've been, you know, there's a New York Times article talking about how, you know, your family is embarrassed by you, if I recall correctly. Epoch Times, we've been attacked in all sorts of ways with all sorts of very unfortunate monikers. Um, in fact, what drives me insane is that when we get attacked, they don't usually really attack us. They attack our founders who are Falun Gong practitioners and, and the idea, and they use Chinese Communist Party propaganda to do it. One of the most persecuted groups in the world. It drives me nuts, right? But, the, but here we are, right? I mean, what the, is there's a big cost to at least trying for the truth, to trying to go after the truth today. You don't feel that? Well, I feel like there is a cost, but I don't feel, I don't feel like I have anything to complain about. I think, you know, we're, given, we're all given a job to do. And that, um, you know, that... Um, Having a difficult life or having these challenges is ultimately a gift. You know, my dad, right before he died, he died my dad handed me a book um, by Camus called The Plague. And it was, and he, he, he gave it to me in his bedroom and he gave it to me with a, he called me in and gave it and he said, I want you to read this with this kind of peculiar intensity. And so after he died, I read it uh, several times trying to kind of unlock, you know, the, the reason why he felt so strongly about this book. And the book is about a doctor in a quarantine city where there's a plague going through it and nobody can go there to in or out. Nobody knows what the plague is and they don't know how to treat it. And the doc, but they know it's contagious and if you get exposure, you're highly likely to die. And a lot of the book is the doctor having a conversation with himself in his bedroom saying, I don't want to leave because I'm going to die. And yet, you know, I'm a doctor, so I'm supposed to be helping people, but I don't know how to help people. I don't know. There's no treatment of this. There's nothing I can really do. And in the end, he leaves, and he goes, and he ministers to the 
to the sick, to the dying, to the discomforted. He does his job. And um, Camus wrote another book. About Camus. Camus was an existentialist, but he, and he was kind of the, the inheritor of the legatee of the, the Roman uh, and Greek philosophy of Stoicism. And he wrote a book about the Stoic hero, the icon, iconic Stoic hero, Sisyphus. And in that book, or, and Sisyphus was cursed by the gods to be pushing a stone up the hill all the time, a giant boulder. But when he gets to the top of the hill, he can never get it over. He gets it almost there, but it always rolls back on him, and then he has to start again. He has to do that for eternity. And it sounds miserable, but in the minds of the Stoics, Sisyphus was a happy man because he had a job, and he was always striving to go upward. He was putting his shoulder to the stone, and he was doing his duty. And that's where happiness and satisfaction and peace comes from. And um, so a lot of times the things that we consider penalties or you know, injuries or misfortunes are actually gifts to us. And they're touchstone, you know, pain is the touchstone of spiritual growth. And, um, you know, I feel very happy with my life and peaceful about the choices I've made. And I have compassion for family members who don't agree with me on a lot of issues. Um, and I don't, you know, have hard feelings toward anybody. I just, um, I know what I have to do and I do my best to do it. Well, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Jan, for having me. Thank you all for joining Robert F. Kennedy Jr. and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellick.